And now, with sound investing, here's Paul Merriman. I had a number of uh, topics that I wanted to address this week. In fact, I had a lot of Q&As. But when I looked through the Q&As, most of them had something to do with performance. It may be about why didn't I pick or Chris Pedersen pick uh, an ETF that uh, had a better rate of return than another. Another might have been critical about uh, the, uh, the, the, the amount of value and small cap that we have in a portfolio. And those asset classes haven't done as well as expected. And I'll talk more about that in a few minutes. But many of them had to do with performance. And some of them had to do with future performance and what people should expect and and how they should plan, and others had to do with, uh, in some way, not trusting the past. Well, let me tell you what I wish I could do. I just sent a birthday wish to somebody today, just turned 60 years of age, and I said to her, I would love to know the wishes that you were making on your 60th birthday, and I hope you're making big ones. Well, it's not my birthday, but if it were my birthday, I would, I would make the wish that I could sit down with every one of you for probably two hours. I don't even know that we'd ever have to talk again, but in that two hours, I would get to know a lot about you. I would get to know what you believe, uh, how you feel about loss, how you feel about trusting people who, who pretend to know the future, how you feel about low expenses. I run into a lot of people who will not invest in small cap or value, uh, even in the index funds, because the, the, the expenses are higher than what they would pay in the S&P 500, even though those other asset classes have a history of adding a couple percent to the compound rate of return. And in that two hours, I would get an idea of what kind of rate of return it will take for you to get where you're trying to go. And that's because I will then be able to know how much you need to save in order to get there. I mean, there would be all these things that are interconnected. And when we write articles, when we do podcasts, when we put together portfolios, it, it just can't take all those moving parts of your physical being, your emotional being, your financial being. But boy, is it fun when you have that opportunity to really dig into the individual. Now, I, I just got this email from uh, Michelle Thompson. And uh, Michelle Thompson is a PR person, and she is working for uh, either somebody who writes a newsletter about Bitcoin or, uh, or somebody who's in the business of selling Bitcoin. I'm not really sure, but here's what I do know. I know she wants to talk with people like me who have an audience about something that will benefit their client. Now, here's what they say in the first line. With Bitcoin seeming like a viable investment option again, how does Bitcoin and the top 20 crypto coins stack up against other investments? We see just responding to that one question. What would, if, what would I know about you if you said, yeah, hey, yeah, I mean, it's down. Bitcoins are, are they're down, and now maybe, maybe it is a good time to invest in Bitcoin. Well, it turns out by my definition, by my belief system, that Bitcoin is not an investment. I don't mean to suggest that it won't be higher or lower tomorrow, just like it might be higher or lower for the NASDAQ tomorrow, it goes up and down, very similar in some ways as to 
other kinds of things that are called investments. But I can't let this qualify as an investment in my life. And yet when I think about what I call investments, I don't know how much of what I expect is purely blue sky. And see, this is one of the interesting challenges in trying to, to, to think through the return we are likely to get for an investment, whether it's Bitcoin or it's a large-cap value fund. Now, again, I don't think Bitcoin is an investment. I want to take you through Bitcoin from January 1, 2011, through January 1, 2019. Now keep in mind, there is no P-E ratio that we can measure. There is no book value that we can measure. We really can't uh, uh, draft up a report on how Bitcoin is going to be a better investment than another investment that has no book value, that has no P.E. ratio, that has uh, lacks this information that it would take to give me some sense of, of confidence. That's what I'm looking for. I think that's what most of you are looking for. You know that I can't know, and you know that you can't know, and you know that nobody else, else knows where things are going to be, but we still end up putting our confidence in somebody else in almost every case. Now, I go back to the Bitcoin, Bitcoin price, the first of the year, 2011, 30 cents, 30 cents. 2012, same day, $4.60. Well, this is starting to look like uh, at, at, at least a speculation, uh, it is. Uh, uh, it, it might be compared even to a penny stock that might do that in one year. That happens. It does. By the first of the year of 2013, the price was $13.62. At the beginning of 2014, it was almost $1,100. 2015, almost $400. 2016, about $464. 2017, $969. 2018, $19,498. That's how that year started. And for 2019, it started with a value of four thousand one hundred and seventy seven and as of the eighteenth of March it was four thousand four dollars. Now uh, first thing is that um, I would have to admit I am not an expert on Bitcoin. And one of the reasons that Warren Buffett and Paul Merriman, one of the things I guess they have in common is they don't like to invest in things they don't understand. And by the way, I want to be careful. I am not holding myself up to the knowledge that Warren Buffett has because his knowledge is of a handful of companies, I think 50 or so companies, and he knows them, I'm sure, inside and out. My knowledge is not of any individual company. My knowledge is... Of a handful, there are about 20 asset classes, theoretically, I could pick from to put together a portfolio. And, uh, and even then, I lean on the academic community to tell me, help me understand which of these asset classes uh, would be good. I mean, that's a, that's a long way from what Warren Buffett is doing. But Warren Buffett has said he was not a technology investor because he didn't understand it. And I must say, I don't exactly understand Bitcoin. But I do know that without the Bitcoin changing, that it has gone from, by the way, that might not be a fair statement if you're a Bitcoin uh, expert, but to go from 30 cents a share or a, a, a Bitcoin to uh, 
1100 uh, over the 2011 through 2014, the beginning. So a three-year period. It was the beginning of 2014 that it was up to 1100. And then a year later, it's down to less than well, about a third. And within a couple of years, beginning of 2018, almost $20,000. Now think of that. If you used this currency and it was worth 30 cents in 2011, if you converted it to buy a product, maybe three pieces of bubble gum, a dime a piece. And here we are at the beginning of 2018, and what would buy you three packages of gum will now buy you a new car. I mean, it's pretty amazing when you think of it that way. But I can tell you that I don't have any way to tell an investor that there is a likelihood if you put money into this that you will, in fact, 10 years from now, have a, a, an asset of greater value rather than less. That is not true of real investments. You look at almost, almost every 10-year period of the S&P 500 or small cap value or large cap value, and all but a handful were profitable at the end of the 10 years. And by the way, uh, it was 2000 through 2009, that was one period, also, 1929 through 1938 was another period. Both of those periods had substantial losses, or I don't know if you call them substantial in your mind, but substantial in mine, particularly if I was depending on those asset classes to feed me, to give me money and income and cash flow in retirement. So I can't call this an investment because I don't have any sense that if right now I pay $4,004 for one Bitcoin, that at the end of 10 years, it will be worth more. In fact, what you're going to find out is there'll be a lot of cases we can look at in the next few minutes were even investing in things that were perceived to be a lot more dependable than Bitcoin, but it didn't work out. I will make sure there is a link uh, to a list. The list is called the 20 craziest investing facts ever. Well, in reality, not all of them are that crazy, but it's a good title. And the, uh, the fellow who put this list together, uh, his name is Michael Batnick. But I'll, we'll have a, a, a link to this. And this is 20 examples. By the way, I'm only going to read a handful of them, where it might surprise you uh, about how, uh, how some really great investments struggled for a long period of time. In fact, number 10 on the list is at the bottom in 2009. Now, remember, that's the bottom of that huge bear market that ended in early March, I think March 9th, 2009. But at that point in time, if you looked back 40 years, long-term U.S. government bonds did better than the stock market. Now, the stock market they're talking about is the S&P 500. That probably wasn't true of large cap value or small cap land or small cap value. That doesn't really matter. But the bottom line is, at the beginning of that period of time, that 40 years, probably few people would have put a lot of money down that for the next 40 years, that the amount of money that you had would be less than government bonds. And, and, and by the way, that kind of a statement is about lump sum investing. This is really important. Lump sum investing is very different 
than dollar cost averaging. And I've written about that in the past. The one example I use is putting $1,000 into small cap value in 1929, and by 1938 it was down to some $400 plus. On the other hand, if you put $100 a year in for those same 10 years, at the end of that 10-year period, it was worth about $1,600. So about four times as much money because you put that $1,000 to work right before a huge bear market. So let me give you a couple more. Uh, For the period of the 1970s, beginning 1970 through the end of 79, the Dow gained 38 points, 38 points. Now, that does not include dividends, and that changes the picture significantly, but the index itself basically just broke even over that uh, 10-year period. Here's another one. At the low in 2009, Japanese stocks were back to where they were in 1980. Let me make sure we understand that. That if you looked at the value of the Japanese stock market, uh, and, and of course, again, this is the large cap, not the small cap in Japan, that at the low point, again, in that March period, that the value of Japanese stocks were the same as they were in 1980. In other words, if you invested everything in 1980 and did not include the dividends again, you would would be right where you were uh, in the beginning as late as 2009. And what if we looked at gold versus the Dow? Again, these are that the crazy uh, investing facts, according to uh, uh, Michael uh, Batnick. Gold and the Dow were both 800 in 1980. Today, gold is approximately $1,300 an ounce, uh, less than double, and the Dow is near 26,000. So from 800 to 26,000, versus 800 to 1300. But if we just look at a different time period, for example, the last 20 years, gold is up 340% and stocks are up, including dividends, 208%. And here's one about Warren Buffett. Uh, He claims that he's the greatest investor of all time. Well, at the, at, the, at, at the end, it may be that, that John Bogle will be considered the greatest in, investor of all time. That would be an interesting debate. But in the 20 months leading up to the dot-com peak, Berkshire Hathaway lost 45% of its value. The NASDAQ 100 gained 225% over the same time. And then the final one I'll pick out of uh, uh, this list, Uh, and this is an important one to me because it, it, it says something about our expectations and how our expectations can be so different from reality. In 1949, the stock market was trading at 6.8 times earnings. By the way, That's about what it was in 1974 as well. But anyway, 6.8 times earnings and had a dividend yield of 7.5%. 50 years later, it reached a high of 30 times earnings and carried just a 1% dividend. Think of the difference of belief systems that people had in 1949 versus how they felt 50 years later. And then you have 
a group of people who try to justify their beliefs and their predictions. Uh, They won't call it predictions necessarily because they'll be very careful to say we can't guarantee future results. But this group of people, and I happen to belong to this group of people, are making investments, what they call evidence-based investments. And the challenge with evidence-based investing is that the people who believe in it as a group have looked at at, at returns going back uh, 90 years. And, and so they feel like they have been able, with the, by the way, with the help of folks who dug out that 90 years worth of, of documented evidence, the problem is it doesn't mean with all the great evidence that you're going to get the result that you believe will be achieved. And certainly, and there's an article that I noted uh, by a near Kazar, I don't know that we can put a link to it because it comes out of uh, uh, one of the uh, publications that is, uh, you have, I think you have to subscribe, but the, the, you could look to see. Uh, uh, the, uh, the title is Voices, colon, When Evidence is Solid and Returns Aren't. And as many of you know right now, there's been a lot of solid evidence that was presented to investors over the last decade, and it turned out the returns didn't look like the sales pitch. You see, if it had worked out the way that people presented it based on the evidence going back at that point, let's say 80 years, then you wouldn't have said what the sales pitch said. You would have said, based on the academic research, But when you lose, all of a sudden, whatever people said becomes a sales pitch because it didn't work out. So it must have been just another uh, swear word salesperson's got me again. Well, in this article, and there are many articles recently have been written about this reality, it says this month marks the 10th anniversary of the U.S. stock market's turnaround from the depths of the 2008 financial crisis. A lot has changed since March 2009. Of course, that's the fact that 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 was the bottom, March 9th, 2009. Investors are more fee conscious. That's true, by the way. People uh, uh, 10 years ago had little knowledge about the impact of fees Uh, on the management of a mutual fund. And, of course, a lot of people 10 years ago still believed in active management. Those people are become rarer and and rarer. Um, People now uh, are willing to venture into foreign markets. Uh, And, by the way, that that is across the board because I can remember uh, back 10 years ago when 20% of a portfolio was a lot to have in foreign markets. Well, for the previous decade, um, we had been, say we, the Merriman Investment Management Company, um, we had half our money in internationals because that was basically what the academics taught us made sense. Um, People were also... uh, open to a broader variety of investing styles because you've got size, you've got value, you've got momentum, quality. When you look at those recommendations that came from Chris Pedersen for the ETF best-in-class portfolio, you may remember that those were the size, the value, the momentum, and quality were all important factors in the decision which were the best ETFs. 
And the article goes on to say that this evolution was no accident, that it was part of the movement known as evidence-based investing. And this writer is an advocate of that as well. And the basic premise, he says, is that investors should rigorously test the validity of an investment idea or rely on credible research that has done so before putting their money behind it. And by the way, that normally means putting the money of their, of their clients behind it as well. The problem is, going on with his, his column, is that evidence-based investing has been a bust over the last decade. Everything investors had been doing wrong, according to the evidence, turned out to be right. Well, I think, quoting here again, uh, Mr. Uh, Kazar, while I think the last 10 years are going to turn out to be an anomaly, I wouldn't be surprised if evidence-based portfolios become a tougher sell for the average investor. And he goes on in the article to um, share some of the um, the statistics that you've heard from me before, how value outperforms growth most of the time. In fact, if you look at a long enough period, uh, it's about 90 plus percent. Uh, that, that small beats large most of the time. Uh, and certainly the stocks beat bonds most of the time. But it has turned out that those were, over the last 10 years, not the best place to be. It turns out that you would have been better off in large cap growth. Not small cap, not value, but large cap and growth. So it, 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 it then creates a, a, a problem for investors because they thought they were doing what they were doing based on good evidence. And here's kind of the, the line in the sand or the fork in the road or whatever you want to call it. Because now what do you do with a decade worth of evidence? Well, I don't know. I don't think it's statistically meaningful. I still believe that value will outproduce growth in the long term. Small will outproduce, uh, out, outproduce large. And even though we know there was a 40-year period when bonds did better than stocks, we know that happened. I just don't think that's likely to happen. It's not probable, but let's say it's not highly probable. If it's one out of 20 periods, that would be a lot. And in the case of, of the, uh, the value versus growth and the and the, well, the value versus growth, it might be um, a, a one out of a 10 periods that you would expect uh, to have the, the, uh, the growth beat value if we looked at 10-year periods. But it does present a problem for people. Because what are we to believe? Do we still believe that Warren Buffett has the magic key? Do we believe that if Peter Lynch could just come back and, and manage Fidelity Magellan again, that it would be a magic performer? Have we started to think maybe we should be in actively managed funds? Maybe expenses aren't really going to hold us back in the long term. Well, I certainly feel strongly about the index aspect. I feel, certainly feel strongly about the ex lower expenses. I certainly feel strongly about the broader diversification. But I can't say for sure what's going to happen to value versus growth. In fact, I've always been weak-kneed about that. I've always had a problem. Now, for some people, I, I, I'm willing to compromise and say, take a chance. Odds are way in your favor if you're a very long-term investor, if, if you want to place the bet, if you want to call it a bet, 
or if you want to invest in asset classes that we know are more volatile, but that given 40 years, that you are likely to beat the balanced blended funds by a mile. But for people who are older, don't necessarily have 40 years to place a bigger bet on a particular asset class. It's a different, it's a different situation. Because I told people, older people, people who probably shouldn't have their portfolio all value, like we have newborn children's portfolio, not only all value, but all small cap value. Money that we just hope, fingers crossed, will be there until they're 65. I'm okay with that. But when I talked a decade ago, or two decades ago, when I talked about how much of different asset classes you should have, I was as strong about value and small cap then as I am now. But I said, what if? What if, in fact, over the next period of time that's meaningful to you, let's call it the rest of your life, what if large outperforms small? What if growth outperforms value? What if the U.S. outperforms internationals? By the way, if we look at five-year periods over the last uh, 40 plus years, the internationals have outperformed the U.S. in more five-year periods than the U.S. outperforming internationals. But that could turn around, certainly has been that way lately. But here was my answer to all those questions. Okay, if you're using the ultimate buy-and-hold strategy, or let's just call it the strategy that has equal parts, big, small, value, growth, all right, a little more value than growth, but, but theoretically equal parts, equal parts, U.S. international, 10 asset classes, includes a slice of REITs, includes a slice of emerging markets, and you simply put 10% in each one of those. Guess what? If large beats small, we've got it. We wish that small had outperformed large, but it's okay. We've got half the portfolio in large. If growth outperforms value, all right, we have a little more value than growth, but we've got a lot of growth, and so we've got that too. And the U.S. and international, we've got percentage of each of those as well. So at the end of the day, this is once again nothing more than the, the, the call for diversification, diversification amongst stocks, diversifications amongst industries, diversification amongst countries, diversification based on size, diversification based on value. I mean, it's just layer after layer of diversification. So we didn't take a big stand. In fact, we we were wimps because if we really knew that small would outperform large, why would we why would we have half of the money in large? And the same with value versus growth. So let's put it this way. I think for people who are on a shorter string. At 75, I can tell you, I know I'm on a short string. But maybe even at the you know, 40, 45, 50, maybe it's time to cool your jets there and, and not be placing big bets unless you feel like you have to. The reason you have to is because maybe you didn't save enough or maybe you invested uh, uh, in a less productive manner when you were younger and so you don't have as much money as you should. But unless you're playing catch-up for some reason, which, by the way, a better solution is to save more, but you know, that's a decision, a fork in the road that you got to figure out. But... 
I do think that for those people who are on the downhill side of a very long life, that there is a lot of benefits to having that balance of big and small and value and growth, U.S. and international. And as you cross over and start on the downside, probably it's time to start adding fixed income. If you look at what uh, the glide paths are for, uh, for the major uh, target date funds, you'll see that the industry seems to agree uh, that at about age 40, it's time to start ramping up the fixed income. There are so many assumptions to be made. Anytime you're building a lifetime plan, there are assumptions. You may not even think about those assumptions, but whether you think about it or not, you're going to make a decision that suggests that you did think about it. The assumption that you're going to work until 65. There are a lot of people, something like almost 25% of retirees or the, who are of retirement age uh, are, are planning uh, on working basically forever. Now, maybe not all, not all full-time, but they have no plans of really retiring. And it may be that one of the reasons that happened to them was that they made some assumption about how things were going to be. And then we have a list of concerns. We can have concerns about the individual companies. We can have concerns about individual asset classes, uh, different countries. We can have concerns about the political structure. We can have concerns about, uh, about the, the faith in, the, in the, the stock market, the system, the capitalistic system. So all of these assumptions lead you to doing what you do and, and saving what you save. And I think of all the people that I've addressed over the years and in those workshops, I have asked them, how many of you have a pension? Now, this is a room. These are rooms filled with a lot of retired people. And a lot of hands go up. Typically, more than 50% of the people who attended my workshops. And then I would ask how many felt that that pension and that check coming in every month is one of the true financial luxuries you have in your life. You don't have to worry. That's the assumption that you've made. Now, fewer and fewer people are, are going to have pensions available to them. And of course, a lot of people still think they're going to get a pension. But let me, let me just share with you uh, another release that I got uh, today from a public pension publication. And they talked about the unfunded liabilities in state pension plans. And there got to be a lot of people in state pension plans. And uh, what they've said in this report, that there is a way of measuring when a pension is, in fact, not at risk of default. And, uh, and, and here is the quote uh, from the Joint Economic Committee, uh, that this is, this is a Government Accountability Office, they, they created this formula, and it says the Pension Protection Act of 2006 provided that large private sector pension plans will be considered at risk of defaulting on their liabilities if they have less than 80% funding ratios under standard actuarial assumptions. Now that 80% is the key. Uh, what they say then is every single state is vastly below the safety threshold. 
is the average funding ratio for the uh, state's pension liabilities. Remember, anything below 80% is a sign of risk of default. And so, and by the way, even in the state that has the highest funding ratio, Wisconsin is only funded at 60.5%, and Connecticut is 20% of the public pension liabilities funding that was necessary. Now, there are a lot of reasons this has happened. Some of this has been because of, of just fraud, outright fraud. Some of it has been because of bad money management. Uh, some has just been the misuse of, 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 of funds or you know, bad choices. But the bottom line is what it is. Now, I realize this might seem like it has nothing to do with evidence-based investing. But with evidence-based investing, there is a, a, a belief that this 90 years of, of, of uh, academic uh, evidence of returns gives us some sort of sense of, uh, of, of consistency and confidence that if we invest in a certain way that we're going to come out ahead, we're going to meet our goals. But this is, and so we, and so we make assumptions about how much we save and how much we put in equities, how much in fixed income. I, I just, I worry so about uh, the millennials. I think it's the number is something like 30% of millennials think the safe place for, for cash for investments of greater than 10 years is cash. The best investment, long-term investment, is cash. And, and these pensions are way behind and that's even with equities in the portfolio. And equities in most 40-year periods have done much better than fixed income. But the bottom line is we make an assumption. We make an assumption that my pension, my company, is going to be able to meet their obligation. My state is going to be able to meet their obligation. Which, if you didn't really trust that, might encourage you to save more. Might encourage you to have more inequities. And by the way, I am not advocating anything, specu no speculation, no Bitcoin. I know they want to put, maybe they've figured out how to do it now, but put Bitcoin into IRAs, 401k plans. Uh, I personally think it's a terrible idea. But enough people make money on it, they'll figure out a way to do it. I do think that we have to be careful responding to short-term performance, whether it's good performance or bad. If all of the evidence says the S&P 500 is a good investment for the long term, and I absolutely believe it is, I just don't think it should be as much of the portfolio as what a lot of people have. But I do believe it is the highest quality of the equity asset classes. And you don't want to have all of your money in asset classes that are of low quality. Now, what we do know is that from 2000 through 2009, that the S&P 500 lost money. And it was a substantial loss. It may not sound like a, a lot of 1% a year, but uh, over a decade, uh, not only is that a fairly substantial loss, but you take inflation into consideration and you're falling further and further behind. I can see where that might have scared somebody with Bitcoin because they would have put money into Bitcoin and thought they were going to be rich and maybe they didn't get rich. But because people do have a long-term sense of trust in the major U.S. corporations, they stuck with the S&P 500, those that didn't panic and get out of the market, 
you know, through that 2008, early 2009 experience. But yes, some people got out, but most people stayed the course. And I think that's what we need to do with these other great asset classes that may not have performed up to expectations lately. What I don't want you to do is I don't want you to try to find something that did particularly well over a short period of time. And here's an example of that from uh, that list that we I was referring to, the, the 20 craziest, uh, uh, craziest investing facts ever. Well, they're not crazy, really, but listen to this. In, uh, in 2008, the average commodity fund gained 14% when the S&P 500 was down 37%. Now that is the kind of thing that they see with just a, uh, just a quick phone call. They might have been able to move out of the S&P 500 and over into the commodity fund. There probably some way, was somewhere a way to get there, particularly if there was a big commission in it for somebody. They'll make it easy. But since 2009, those funds are up 2.5%. 2.5% not annualized, but total. While stocks are up 282%. And the risk that so many of you are at is that somebody will get your attention. Somebody's hand is going to be flailing. Take me. Take me. It could be gold. Somebody could tell you that over the last 20 years, gold is up 340%, while stocks are only up 208 the last 20 years has not been a great time for the S&P 500. By the way, there are other equity asset classes that did much better over that 20-year period. So be careful that you don't let short-term performance, a great sales pitch, you know, bitcoins are, are maybe getting down to where they're a good investment. Well, you know, maybe there's a chance they might only go up 100%. I may not be able to make 1,000%, but maybe I could double my money in the next couple of years. Did it before. I know it did it before. It could happen again. You know, we get into that mode of thinking that we're going to play catch-up for the mistakes that we think we made, and we didn't even make a mistake. All you did was you looked at the evidence of, let's call it, 90 years or 80 years worth of performance, and you invested based on that evidence. And while it wasn't a complete bust, I'm not, not saying that's what it was, but it wasn't what you expected. And I guarantee you will always be able to find something else that did better. I have spent my most of my lifetime, because I do love the investing process, I love, I love learning about it, uh, I prefer index funds, and I prefer having a, an advisor who takes care of everything for me. So, so it's not that much fun to me, but I found it interesting for many years, and I always found there was something better than whatever I just did, or whatever else my clients or people I just spoke with, what they could have done. And one of the reasons I think so many people got in trouble, this, I heard this thousands of times over the years I was in the industry. People would say, what do you like for last year? Or what do you think of gold? They want me to somehow respond and tell them, what I think is going to happen next. Or they'll ask, how did you do last year? And if I tell them I was up 100%, they're going to want to know what I'm recommending next. If, they tell, if I tell them I was down 10% for the year, 
uh, they'll just move along and find somebody else who can tell them something really, really pretty, enticing. So if you're not comfortable with the way you're investing, either you have a bad set of expectations about what should happen to you, kind of like as if the market cares about you. You know it doesn't care about you, has no concern about you. But the bottom line is, if you do have realistic expectations and you're still having trouble sleeping, I'm thinking you don't have enough diversification. And if you add some more equities that you didn't have before because you think that would modify the volatility, and that doesn't give you peace of mind, it suggests to me you probably don't have enough fixed income. And if, after all of the attempts to put together a hugely diversified equity portfolio, diversified bond portfolio to go along with the diversified equity portfolio, if after all of that you're still having trouble sleeping, the next step is to probably look at a portfolio that is totally devoted to fixed income. And even then, if you're scared because you think interest rates are going to go up and your bonds are going to go down, uh, maybe what you need to do is to set up a, just a, a laddered CD strategy from one to five years and just keep rolling those suckers over. And if that doesn't give you enough income and your cost of living isn't being met with that income from those CDs, then you may belong to the group that really should be taking a look at immediate life annuities, where you might, depending on your age, be able to take out six, seven, eight, even more percent guaranteed annually for the rest of your life. Of course, they don't leave anything after you and your spouse have died because they can pay out over the both of your lives. But somewhere out there is that balance that lets you sleep easy, meets your cash flow needs. And uh, I'm hoping you get it from the diversification that includes some equities because I think in the long term, you're going to need them. Thanks for listening. Share it with friends. Like our podcast. Like our articles at MarketWatch. All of that helps us get the word out to more investors. I appreciate that you spend this valuable time with me. Let's hope it makes you some extra money. Good luck. That was Paul Merriman with Sound Investing. Sound Investing, soundinvesting.com and paulmerriman.com are produced and exclusively owned by Paul Merriman, who is solely responsible for their content. For more information, free articles, mutual fund recommendations, and more, visit paulmerriman.com.